Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 3. So now we live in a world that is, has to a considerable extent, even in the Western world, marginalized Christianity and the Christian revelation. There are still a lot of people that are that are Christians, and it, there's a kind of prevailing ethos. But it's we must say, if you look at things, it's being marginalized. So there are a lot of people, particularly young people, who have no substantial Christian immunization against the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. So they are easy, easily caught up in it. And so I wanted to read you this thing from, which is, a, which is, just has to be compared to the other two things I just read, the Olypius story and the story of uh, Solovyov's general. And it actually happened, and it actually happened not very long ago. And it's in a book called Among the Thugs by Bill Buford. Buford is a journalist who uh, exhibits no particular religious or Christian uh, predilections. He's just interested in what's going on in the world. And he's in, he got interested in, in these skinheads and soccer crowds and sort of the youth subculture in England and in Europe. And he went to join them and write a book about them. And so he did. And he found himself in, at, at one time, several times, but this is one glaring one, caught up in the violence that, that happens in the, when these people get together. And here's how he describes it, and I just want to notice the words. He says, quote, There were six of them, and they all started kicking the boy on the ground. The boy covered his face. I was surprised that I could tell from the sound when someone's shoe missed or when it struck the fingers and not the forehead or the nose. I was transfixed. I suppose thinking about this incident now, I was close enough to have stopped the kicking. But I didn't. I don't think the thought occurred to me. It was as if time had dramatically slowed down and each second had a distinct beginning and end like a sequence of images on a roll of film. And I was mesmerized by each image I saw. Mesmerized. Remember, uh, speaking of Olypius, Augustine had said, he was struck in the soul, his eyes were riveted, he imbibed madness. That's the late 4th fourth, fourth century, and this is the late 20th. Um, so Buford goes on. With that first exchange, some kind of threshold had been crossed. Some notional boundary. On one side of that boundary had been a sense of limits, an ordinary understanding even among this lot of what you didn't do. We were now someplace where there were few limits, where the sense that there were some things you didn't do had ceased to exist. This is the heart of darkness, you see. This is when... Th okay. And then he says, It was 
an excitement that verged on being something greater, an emotion more transcendent, joy at the very least, but more like ecstasy. There was an immense energy about it. It was impossible not to feel some of the thrill. Somebody near me said he was happy, very happy, that he could not ever remember being so happy. End quote. Now, that's precisely what Solovyov's general said about that same moment in his in a fictional character. But I'll just say, Solovyov was not just wildly fantasizing. He was writing out of some sense of this experience, you see. The, the problem with the gen, generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism is that it just doesn't have any generativity anymore. It doesn't generate any kind of sustainable social unit. It generates it for the moment, but it isn't sustainable. It, doesn't, it also doesn't generate enough moral immunity because people can see, even people that have been caught up in it earlier can look back and see its perversity. And so it, does, it can't generate. Nevertheless, the impulse, the social and psychological reflexes are still there, and they arise in us as they, as they do in these young people that uh, Bill Buford wrote about in his book. And so what the general feared has come to pass, namely that the, that the culture's official violence does not dazzle and, gen, and, and, uh, and uh, generate social consensus and and uh, provide a cathartic release for people in the culture anymore. And so what you have is something like the waning of the gravitational field of, of a culture. At the center of the gravitational field is this generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. And as it loses its power under the influence of the gospel revelation, the gravitational field weakens. And as it weakens, those on the margins of culture drift away from it. They're no longer, they're, they're what we call sub, the subcultures at the margins of culture drift away. And many of those marginal subcultures do not have the Christian reservations with respect to this scapegoating mechanism that the dominant culture still has to some extent. You see what I mean? So on the margins, you see very perverse little versions of this thing happening. You see, you see the neo-Nazis and you know, you see various perverse little groups coming together, and and uh, in in the the sort of urban underclass, where the the enculturation has has almost not taken place at all, you get versions of this taking taking place, and we don't know how to deal with it because the dominant culture is still, to some extent, under the influence of the Christian revelation, and these subcultures are to much less extent under that influence. So the question is, how do we respond? And one of the things that happens is we get, tie, we get in, tied up in, in the paradox. How do you stop it without becoming part of it? The story I think I referred to here, which was in, during Vietnam War, there was not long ago this woman wrote a book, a Vietnamese woman. She said the Americans came by during the war. Some guy came into the little the little underground foxhole where she and a whole bunch of people were 
and some American came in there with his machine gun and just blasted everybody, you know, threw a grenade in there. She was the only one that lived. She tumbled out of there bleeding and, you know, critically injured. And suddenly an American helicopter came down, put her on a stretcher, flew her to a base. They took her to Paris, put her in this hospital, spent weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, you know, trying to save her life. She said, I couldn't figure out what was going on. It's Western culture. You see, that's it. That's it. As soon as the person has a face, as soon as the madness has, has calmed down a little bit, then suddenly these sensibilities come back again to some extent. Well, there was an example of that in a recent book, in the epilogue of a recent book entitled Civil Wars by Hans Eisenberger who's a German j journalist, and he's talking about what's going on in Germany in terms of these subcultures. And he says they're like the people that, uh, that Buford studied. Uh, the, the scapegoating goes on all the while. And in his, and in his uh, epilogue, he talks about the manhunt. He said all over, all over Germany, all over Europe right now, among the subcultural crowd, there are these manhunts going on. And namely, every, these, some of these groups, they're just going out looking for somebody to prey upon socially. It's foreigners, you know, it's immigrants, it's Jews, it's, it's uh, the gypsies, it's the poor people, it's homosexuals, it's whoever. And they just, they're just roaming the countryside in a manhunt. And I think the manhunt finally is the search for the victim whose victimization will be generative. You see what I mean? It's a complicated thing. But Eisenberger, in, in his epilogue, says this mockingly, but it makes an interesting point. He says, as for the politicians, many of them have taken the stage in an unfamiliar role as social workers. Their therapeutic efforts are not directed at the hunted. They were fobbed off with high-flown phrases. But at the very people who were engaged in the manhunt, their therapeutic efforts are... Uh, are for the people engaged in the manhunt. All in all, they seem to be saying, we are dealing with poor souls who have to be treated with the utmost patience. It's hardly possible to expect such underprivileged persons to realize that setting fire to children is, strictly speaking, not permissible. Attention must be drawn all the more urgently to the inadequate supply of leisure activities available to the arsonist. But what is this? What is this but the West not wanting to scapegoat, you see, and therefore being unable to call a halt to the scapegoating? It's just an example of the kind of knots one is tied in by the Christian revelation because it would be easy enough to say, ah, let's stamp them out, and then you just become one of them. It's not an easy, there's, there's no easy solutions to this. Which reminds me, and I'll leave you with this, of a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I should do this next week because it really deserves more. Dick Osborne's a f tape subscriber sent me this cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. And I wrote him back and I said, if Calvin and Hobbes gets any better, I'm out of a job. 
I don't know if you saw it. Here it is. They're walking in the snowy woods, Calvin and Hobbes. And Hobbes is the tiger. Hobbes says to Calvin, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? And Calvin says, I didn't make any. See, in order to improve oneself, one must have some idea of what's good, and that implies certain values. But as we all know, values are relative. Every system of belief is equally valid, and we need to tolerate diversity. Virtue isn't better than vice. It's just different. And Hobbes says, I don't know if I can tolerate that much tolerance. <laughs> and Calvin says, I refuse to be victimized by notions of virtuous behavior. <laughs> well, there you have it. Russell Baker once observed what we've all observed, which is that every time you solve a problem, you create two new ones. So he said, obviously, the secret to a happy life is to not solve any more problems than you have to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've, I've been thinking about that lately because, it, particularly in this series, I've raised so many issues that seem to be tangential to what we're supposed to be here talking about, but my feeling is that these issues, most of which are what I think of as underlying anthropological issues, are so intimately connected to the ontological questions, spiritual questions, psychological questions that, that we're going to be concerned with in the weeks ahead that I felt we should spend some time uh, talking about that and trying to make the relationship between the anthropological and the ontological issues uh, clearer. I'm not sure I've made anything clear, to be honest with you, but in any event, that's why I did it, and uh, now I feel that Russell Baker's observation falls on me. I've, I've uh, tried to solve too many problems and created a lot of new ones, but in any event, today I'm going to try to, to make to turn the final corner and head down the stretch toward what we're really here to talk about, which uh, is, the, is the spiritual, ontological, psychological problem uh, of, in, the, in the modern world. And as a sort of earnest on my promise to eventually take seriously the ontological implications of Christian faith, that's my promise. I mean, this is the reason we're going to think about for example, fame. I'm going to use Browdy's book on fame as as a uh, as a companion text for thinking about the modern crisis and for thinking about the ontological implications of the New Testament of Christian faith and of the Christian revelation. And you would hardly know that that's the case from what I've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. So, more or less, as earnest on my promise to eventually get there. I want to begin today by quoting from the New Testament and, and then try my very best to get back to that same text at the, end of the, at, at the end of the day. And the text I want to quote to you is a passage from the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking, and it goes like this. Human glory means nothing to me. I know you too well. You have no love of God in you. 
I have come in the name of my Father, and you refuse to accept me. If someone else should come in his own name, you would accept him. How can you believe since you look to each other for glory and are not concerned with the glory that comes from the one God? It's an absolutely incredible passage. I think it's one of those passages which one could study endlessly. And every time one approaches it, one sees the deeper implications of just about every, every word in it. So I'll try to come back to it at the end. But, but as I move away from it toward the other things that we we'll talk about at the beginning of our session today, let me just make a few comments. To look to each other for glory is, particularly for us when we read it at the end of the 20th century, to look to each other for glory is, you might say, a secular and ontological version of Paul's objection to to the pharisaical effort to achieve justification by perfect adherence to the law. In other words, I think it parallels what Paul is saying. It's not within a religious context. What Paul was saying to his fellow Jews is that the attempt which the Pharisees made, Pharisee means the purified ones, the attempt to achieve justification or righteousness by scrupulously obeying the law was a vain one. Paul says you cannot get there from here. Justification is not something you earn. It's a gift that comes with faith. Now what is justification? Now we should... we. Could, we, we should ask the question at the psychological level. What is justification? Well, it's a sense of confidence in the self-confidence, real self-confidence, as opposed to the phony kind that we exude in order to cover up the lack of the real one. But what is, what is confidence? Well, self-confidence, you see, it's not self-confidence. That's just it. it, it that's a contradiction. To say self-confidence is a contradiction. Confidence is with faith. You see, well, if it's in, with faith in oneself, that's precisely the faith that's falling apart in our world. So I want to notice the parallel between what Jesus is talking about in John's Gospel, the attempt to achieve glory from each other, and what Paul talks about in religious context. You could almost say that the passage in John's Gospel is, a, is in a psychosocial context that is not that's secular, trying to achieve glory from each other. And Paul's talking about a religious version of it, trying to achieve justification. But glory and justification in this instance are very similar ideas, particularly when we try to measure them in terms of psychological or ontological uh, reality. So, as Jesus says, the glory that comes from the one God is the true glory, and it's a gift. It comes from the one God. It comes as a gift. It isn't earned. It comes as a gift. The word glory in, the, in Greek is doxa, which was a translation of the Hebrew kabod. And the Greek translation is a little weak with, compared to the, the Hebrew. Doxa means, well, it can mean uh, an estimation, an opinion, an appraisal of the situation uh, so it's a little bit weak in that regard. So to be orthodox is to, is to have the proper assessment 
of the situation, a proper understanding of the real relationships and so on. And that's perfectly appropriate at one level. But the word kabod means weight, means substance, real substance. And so glory means the source of substance. And so now we're already back to de Lubach's conversation about ontological density and uh, Marcel's discussion of, onto of the uh, need for ontological mooring. So let me just pause on this word glory for a second in its, in its Hebrew uh, form. The word glory, of course, in the Old and New Testament has many meanings. And often one finds it used for what we would now call sacred violence. The glory of Yahweh appeared and some very untoward things began to happen to some people, you see. So it has its connection to sacred violence, particularly in the Old Testament. But on the other hand, for example, it's the glory that comes from the one God, which is something else altogether. So like so many other terms in the, in the biblical tradition, it undergoes an evolution. Not an evolution, because it's not a natural process. It's a revelatory process. But it undergoes a profound transformation in the course of history as the paraclete begins to massage it and transform it. So we have these terms, like sacrifice is a, is a very powerful example of that, which it begins with a very literal meaning. Somebody dies, some victim dies, some animal dies. Uh, something is offered to the, to the sacred deity and, and, it, and it costs a, a life and so on. And it evolves or develops under the, under the power of the revelation into an understanding of self-sacrifice which is a powerful transformation. It moves out of the primitive uh, venue and into a truly Christian um, perspective. But I'm just saying there are a lot of terms like that which we have to see in terms of the work of the paraclete in order to fully appreciate because we might come to them either with a late understanding of their meaning and not be able to figure out what they mean in the earlier context, like people who go back and read about sacrifice in the Old Testament. Sometimes they're reading it through the, through the notion of the Christian self-sacrifice. Or, or, uh, or we could go the other way. One could go to, the new, to some notion of uh, sacrifice that's late in the Christian revelation and, and, and bring with it, as some people have, the old notion of blood sacrifice and uh, thereby perpetuate some of, these, some of these ideas which have been pretty strong vestiges throughout the tradition, ideas like, uh, like, um, like uh, the atonement idea in terms of the crucifixion and so on. But in any event, we should see these, ter these terms as being transformed in time. And the term glory is one of those. The old sacred notion of glory gives way over time to the notion of glory that is alluded to here in John's Gospel the glory that comes from the one God. And I would say to deconstruct and dismantle the former without discovering the sanctifying power of the latter is to be thrown into an anthropological and religious crisis, a version of which is engulfing the modern world. And so th there, we could almost use this word glory in its various manifestations to see 
the bridge that needs to be built between the old sacred system which is collapsing and a new form of religious life which is which it is the business of of the Christian revelation to try to fashion stated anthropologically I would say that Christianity's great historical and religious task one that has fallen almost solely on its shoulders is to bring about a form of desacralization that is thoroughly religious in nature there is a desacralization going on in our world and I want to talk about it here in a minute and for the most part it's a desacralization that is taking place in an entirely secular sense ironically the desacralization in terms of of the dismantling of the old sacred system can never take place except in a religious context so all the forms of desacralization for example the enlightenment french revolution the one to desacralize the uh, you see and pretty soon they were sacralizing the enlightenment the guillotine so that the attempt to desacralize in a secular way always fails and always collapses back into the old sacred system and so i would say it's 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 christianity's unique historical task to try to bring about a form of desacralization that is thoroughly religious in nature that is to say to dismantle the structures of the primitive sacred and the sacrificial and scapegoating mechanisms upon which they depend and to do so in order to give glory to the god revealed by christ on the cross the god of suffering love in whom we live and move and have our being through whom according to the prologue to the gospel of john all things came to be through whom all things came to be now which as i said in the past we have to realize this came to be has to do with ontology i'm happy i'm completely comfortable with the idea of god the creator of the of the material universe i i think that's perfectly right but when the prologue of the gospel of john says everything that came to be came to be through him and nothing that came to be came to be except through him we have to understand that i think ontologically the nature of being real being comes through an an encounter with a relationship to the god revealed in the text to which the prologue of the gospel of john is the prologue and in the tradition that it that it brings into the world so the two forms of desacralization there's a crude form of desacralization in which suddenly the sacred system is is dismantled or it collapses and it's it happens either accidentally or uh, under the uh, under the attack from without or it uh, it's, uh, it's a cynical rejection of it and so on and so forth and then there's the form of desacralization that hap- that's really comes out of the burning heart of the biblical tradition itself it's the biblical tradition deconstructing its own vestiges of of uh, primitive sacrality and revealing as these things fall away uh, the true god so two forms of primitive sacrality and i got i start you know this is how the mind works uh, i so i thought about glory and then i thought about kabod and and then for some reason and i'm not sure why this popped into my head i thought about I just remembered it, I suppose, in um, in the story of Samuel. In First Samuel, you know, you have the story of Eli, who's the who's the the old uh, 
high priest who's sort of asleep at the wheel. He doesn't really have a sense of what's going on. The prophet, prophetic spirit has gone, and he's presiding in a kind of perfunctory way over the sacrificial cult. And his two sons are scallywags. They're they're corrupt, you know, uh, taking advantage of their priestly status. So things are in a pretty bad shape. And then two things happen. Old Eli dies, falls and dies, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken in a battle by the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant is the sacred piece of furniture. I mean, it's the, it's the symbol of the sacred, the primitive sacred. It's got the, the law in it, you know. So suddenly this central sacred object is gone and the old priest is dead. And so are his sons. And one of his sons was Phineas, and the wife of Phineas was pregnant, and she gave birth to a child when all of this happened. Phineas and his brother died. Uh, uh, Eli died, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. And Phineas's wife gave birth to this child, and she named him Ichabod. And Ichabod means, where has the glory gone? And so I was thinking about this. This is the... This is the form of desacralization. It's the experience of Ichabod when suddenly everything is falling apart. And it's falling apart for historically accidental reasons or because the Philistines have grown strong. I mean, this has a contemporary ring to it. But the old, uh, the old uh, high priest has uh, kind of drifted away, doesn't really know what he's doing, you know. It's not working anymore. And certain defeats happen. And suddenly you have Ichabod. And in a certain sense, we're all Ichabods. I mean, we, I don't know if we could say that, but there's, a, there's an aspect of that that's true, I think. Well, if glory, kabod, means weight, it means substance, it means gravitas, then Ichabod means weightlessness. Weightlessness. Now, if we f and now if we begin to read that ontologically, spiritually, we see the modern problem, the problem of Ichabod. Well, as I said, the biblical tradition itself, and especially I think the New Testament, brings about another form of desacralization, one that is not circumstantial, uh, historical accidents, uh, the defeat or failures of those who are whose task it is to uh, preside over the sacred system and so on, but one that comes out of this burning heart of the tradition and begins to transform it so that it brings about a desacralization in the context of a religious revival. And, it, and one can see it all through the Bible in various places, but it's very powerful in, in the prophets and in the psalmist and, and, and most powerful, I feel, in um, Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, for example, Jeremiah says in one of his diatribes, uh, he, he goes to the temple and people are going in dutifully to the temple, and he says, so you're marching into the temple, chanting, uh, nothing can ever happen to us because we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. He says, ha, ha, ha. It means nothing, you see. God does not want sacrifice. He wants you to walk in the ways of the Lord, walk humbly before the Lord and take care of the widows and orphans. And you see, he's, he's, calling, he's calling for a religious revolution that's desacralizing, but at the same time, profoundly 
profoundly religious. When the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines in, in 1 Samuel, this is a great crisis. The Ark of the Covenant has the law in it, the covenant. It's the, it's the symbol of the whole covenant. And so to lose this piece of furniture is to lose contact with the sacred and to have the experience of Ichabod become a universal experience. Well, in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah you have this profound uh, prophetic revelation where he says, God is going to write the covenant on your heart. So you don't have to be fussing about the temple furniture. You don't have, that's, those, not that we need to take, this is not, this is not iconoclasm, you know, we don't have to take them out and burn them. They still may serve a function, but that's not where this religion really happens, you see. And so you, begin, you get the introduction of interiority, a sense, a, a new sense of subjectivity. The covenant is written on your heart. Again, we have to see this ontologically. What does that mean? Suddenly, the substance, the glory, is taking place inside because of one's relationship to the God revealed by the biblical tradition. Well, I could you know, go on about this. The parallel in our world is that the crude desacralization takes place without any kind of religious revival or conversion. And that's what makes it so dangerous because the sacred system didn't exist for nothing. It had a function historically, socially, culturally, and even psychologically and ontologically. It served a purpose. And so to dismantle it without, without discovering the religious resources that would do and do better, what that, those older religious resources did is to throw ourselves into the modern crisis, which is which is what we've done. It's in a sense to have this, the sacred system uh, uh, be uh, taken off by the Philistines. I mean, in a way, that's what happens to us in the modern world. We've all become Philistines one way or another, and we've all trashed it because we realize that its sacrality is, is arbitrary and, and uh, uh, phony. And the realization that the sacrality is phony we immediately take credit for it. We think, oh, that's because I figured this out. I'm very smart. I see that that's all phony. We don't realize that we're riding on the, on the Christian revelation that has revealed the insubstantiality of all of that. So we toss it off without bothering uh, to, to undergo the religious transformation that accompanies a Christian desacralizing. So now let me speak in... Girardian jargon here for a minute to try to tease some of this, these things out. To desacralize in a completely secular way is to leave all the mimetic passions in place and all the sacrificial and scapegoating logic uh, to which these passions eventually lead, to leave all of that in place and, and simply have it spring up again in a new form, a secularized form of the old primitive sacred, which is what's happened in the 20th century. The 20th century has been one episode after another of, of the revival of the old sacred system, always under some kind of strange, modern, concocted banner. I talked last week or the week before about the logic, the logos, the Heracliton logos, the logos of the old system, the logos that the, the logic that 
that begins with the breakdown of a culture and, tr and is transformed into the r revival of a new culture. And the logic leads from the chaos of the all against all to the, to the unanimity minus one of the all against one. And so by itself, the system, if nothing interferes, unfortunately or fortunately, the Christian revelation, biblical revelation, has interfered. It doesn't work anymore. But it were there no interfer interference, then we would be in the world of the eternal return. We would be in the world where it always breaks down in such a way as to give birth to itself again. The crisis gets frenzied, everybody goes mad, and then in one supreme moment of madness, they kill their victim and discover a new form of social solidarity. So that it's, a, it, it's an automatic system, it's a self-perpetuating machine, it's the, it's the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, but it's been, it's been uh, dismantled by the revelation across it. It can only happen when those caught up in it don't really understand what's happening, and that's been less and less the case since the crucifixion. So that's, so that's the system we talked about it last time. But lacking any functioning system like that, all cultures that, and all cultures rely upon systems like that, so when that system is not functioning or misfiring as it is in our world, the dominant culture loses its gravitational field. It generates its gravitational field in these, in these, in these sacrificial or scapegoating events. That's why I always say, you know, we, when, we, when we have a, a national cause which rallies us against the enemy and so on, there's a tremendous sense of social solidarity. So that's how we generate the social solidarity. Once that mechanism isn't working so much, the, the, the gravitational field field of the culture begins to weaken, and those on its margins begin to drift out of its grip. So you get these subcultures. And so last uh, week, I talked about Bill Buford's book, Among the Thugs. He essentially did an anthropological study of what it's like out there, beyond the gravitational field of the dominant culture, where new subcultures are forming. And because they not only are they outside the gravitational field of dominant culture, they're also, to a very large extent, outside of the, or on the margins of the Christian revelation. So they're less hampered morally and socially and psychologically by the Christian revelation. So they can experiment with more gusto rehabilitating some kind of generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. And that's what happens. And, and uh, Buford talks about in his book, but the other book that I quoted last week, which which I'll quote again today, is is this German journalist whose name is Eisenberger, and he talks about the manhunt. He says these subcultures are just engaged in Germany and in Europe as a whole. There are lots of these subcultures, that, which, according to Eisenberger, says he says they're just engaged in this manhunt. They have different rationale, and the rationale sometimes changes even within one group. Nevertheless, they are searching the landscape for a victim, and he doesn't say this, but one could, it's obvious, for a victim whose victimization would be generative, socially generative. So you have the system running amok on the edges of a culture that can't, that can't officially operate the mechanism anymore. Okay, I, I wanted to run through that just to kind of put it in perspective, but now let's relate it, which is what I really want to do, 
related to the ontological questions. Because those, what Bill Buford calls thugs, are really Ichabods. They're just Ichabods thrown together, looking for some way to restore the glory that is the old sacred system, the old sacred system born out of that sacrificial mechanism. And so they're crudely, in a very bumbling and morally uh, despicable way, trying to generate some kind of culture out of that. Now, the manhunts that they are engaged in are blind gropings for a victim, as I said, whose victimization will be socially productive. But it happens to be one taking place, even though it's on the margins, still and all, it's taking place in a world that is and increasingly is the historical extension of the one sketched out in that passage from the Gospel of Luke that I quoted last week. Right after the crucifixion, we're told the centurion saw what had taken place. He gave praise to God and said, truly, this is an upright man. And when all the crowds who had gathered for the spectacle saw what had happened, they turned and went home beating their breasts. So our world is the historical extension of that. So all of these attempts, these manhunts, these attempts somehow to generate some kind of culture are having to go up against that, some extension of that. Now, so imagine now these sacrificial things that momentarily bring people together. That is to say, the people gathered for the spectacle. It momentarily brings them together, but there's something about its, its denouement, there's something about its climax that makes them want to go home beating their breast. You see, The very thing that used to bring them together is now blowing them apart. The glue has become an explosive. This used to bring us together, and now it sends us away, scattered. So it's exactly the opposite motion. Some people have talked about the modern situation, and they say the melting pot has become the centrifuge. Uh, So it's something like that. What happens when they go away? You see, we, there's no follow-up in the Gospel of Luke, but we have a follow-up. We have history, but we also have a follow-up in the form of a poem that I quote all the time. I used to quote it all the time, and I do a little thing with it in the book because it's so apropos of these issues, and it's the poem by Coventry Patmore entitled A London Feet. And it's a story of a hanging in London, which... which uh, looks for all the world like it's going to work socially. That is to say, everybody's there enthusiastic and shouting. And, and then the person is hanged, and uh, it doesn't quite work. And the, I'll just quote a few lines of the poem, because I've quoted it here many times before. But at the decisive moment, at what we would call the crucial moment, crucial means cross, the victim is killed, and it says, the dangling corpse hung straight and still. The show complete, the pleasure past, the solid masses loosened fast. Now, that's just like the Gospel of Luke, isn't it? The solid masses loosened fast. So that takes us right up to the end of verse 48 of chapter 23 of Luke. And then Coventry Patmore does what we pay poets to do. He explicates things a little bit in light of 1900 years of human history since the decisive event. He says, A baby 
strung its doll to a stick. Two children caught and hanged a cat. In other words, this loosening, which happens, it happens because of the biblical revelation has deconstructed the old sacred system, but it is accompanied by no conversion. It's simply a failure of the old system. Most people don't realize it's failing because of the biblical revelation. All they know is they go home with this funny feeling, some form of beating their breast, some kind of bad taste about the whole thing. Nobody, very few realize why that's happening. And so the, the loosening, the s- solid masses loosen fast or the, or the crowd that came turn, turned and went home beating their breast, this process takes place, but there's no conversion involved. It's simply the failure of the old system. Since there's no conversion, all of the problems are still there. All of the mimetic tensions, the mimetic passions, the scapegoating reflexes, everything is not only... It's all, it's the, all those things are there in all of us, conversion or no conversion. But in somebody who's undergoing a conversion, those things have already been challenged. They're suspect. You know, One, one is aware that one is a sinner and that th- these impulses are there and must... And must be, if not transformed, transformed in the final analysis, but in the meantime, challenged and checked. There's none of that's taken place. Those who drift away, drift away with the disease inside them. And according to Patmore, his absolutely his anthrop- anthropological intuition here is unbelievable. Right away, it springs up again, and that's. I think what Eisenberger is talking about in Europe today, the manhunt. So Petmore shows us that without the conversion experience, the fact that the old sacred system has ceased to work doesn't mean anything except that it will be experimented with by those who are on the margins and who are the least touched by the biblical revelation that undermine the sacrificial mechanism to begin with. In Patmore's poem, it's children and criminals. Uh, They're the ones that go off and begin to experiment with this mechanism. Uh, And in our world, it's often the young and people who, for other reasons, have not been influenced by the Christian tradition or who have been influenced by a particularly sacrificial form of it, which can, which can bring about the same thing. Then you get Solovio's general, you see, who wants to use Christian sacred violence. So we have, we have the Gospel of Luke, and then we have Patmore's footnote to the Gospel of Luke, and then we have Eisensberger's footnote to, to the both of them in his book on civil wars. He says, what is intolerable is the presence of people who undertake individual organized manhunts. Now, Patmore was just talking about a baby strung its doll to a stick, two children caught and hanged a cat. But now we have an update from Eisensberger. What's intolerable is the presence of people who undertake individual or organized manhunts. And then he says the simple... Now, he goes beneath most of the social science because social scientists begin to immediately wring their hands and cogitate about this in terms of conventional social science, which can never get to it. I mean, I think one of the things that 
one of the reasons Girard's work is so profound, and one of the reasons it meets a good deal of resistance in the academic world, is it, because it, it calls for a rethinking of the whole structure of, of social science. So at least Eisenberger, who's not, a, who's not a professional social scientist, he's a journalist, he sees that most of the social science reasoning isn't apropos. He says the simple distinction, that is the distinction between the, the hunters and the manhunt and those hunted and the moral problem uh, raised by the manhunt and so on, he says the simple distinction has nothing to do with the so-called foreigners problem, which is the paramount social problem in Germany and in Europe right now. Or I should say it's the paramount social problem because it's the rationale used by those who, to some extent, are engaged in the manhunt. It is a social problem in and of itself as well, no doubt. But it's it's headline problem because it's the rationale used by the by the by those engaged in the manhunt. So Eisenberger says, the simple distinction has nothing to do with the so-called foreigner's problem, neither does it have anything to do with the misery of the third world, nor with the ubiquitous problem of racism. At stake is the monopoly of force which the state claims for itself. In other words, suddenly there are people who are, who are freelancing in terms of sacred violence, they're experimenting with their own versions of the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. And, and they're doing it because the official version isn't working anymore. And what is the monopoly of force? It's the sacred. The sacred, what we call the sacred, is a perfect synonym for the monopoly of righteous violence, or what we call good violence. The fact that the that the dominant culture no longer has a monopoly or its, its monopoly is slipping away is because the ability to distinguish good from bad violence is vanishing. So, okay, well, that's that. Now, I'm going to make a turn here. This turn I'm about to make, I should take an hour to make it. I'm going to take one minute because we have to get on with things. I wanted to look at the question of fame because I want to find a place where we can see both the anthropological and the ontological issues operating at the same time. And it, it, it occurred to me as I was reviewing Browdy's book that this would be a, a possibility, that this might be the text that would allow us to see both. And, and it's a text, of course, one has to work with because it isn't there in the text itself, but all the data is there. So, now let me turn to the question of fame, which seems like I'm t changing subjects entirely, but I want to at least try to indicate at the beginning that I'm not changing subjects entirely. Browdy says early on in this book, quote, the ignorance of what fame means and what it can bring may itself be a hallmark of our period. In other words, we don't know what fame is. We're all caught up in it. We're fascinated by the famous. We want to be famous, uh, so on and so forth. But we don't know what it is. And I would say it's part of the sacred system. It's a, it's a vestige, an attenuated form of the old sacred system. I have some very good things to say about fame, and I think most of them I'm going to say next week. Nevertheless, fame is like all things that have to do with this enormous anthropological transformation we're, we're in the midst of. Fame is one of those things which has, at times, strong roots in the old sacred system, and at other times, some version of it 
is very much part of the Christian economy. Hagiography. The reverence for saints, you see. The, the need for a Lord, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's an immensely complicated question. Uh, but when Browdy says the ignorance of what fame is and what it means is the hallmark of the modern age, I think he's talking about our, our naivete about it with respect to the primitive sacred. He, he doesn't analyze it in terms of primitive sacred because he doesn't do an anthropological analysis. He goes on to say, however, only with the modern frenzy of renown have so many appeared with so little or no comprehension of the contract of eyes and attention by which the audience and the fame seeker balance their desires. Now, you'll, with, that, with those words in mind, the, the contract of eyes and attention by which the audience and the fame seeker balance their desires, one can hearken back to the primal scene almost. One can hearken back to the, to the world in which, in which an exception is about to be discovered, a world of a kind of churning wor- social unit in which the need for an exception is arising and the, and the mechanisms which will uh, extrude that exception, the stone the builders reject, is about to become the cornerstone. You see, it's that process which you can feel in a way when Rowdy says there's something about this contract between the, the audience and the fame seeker that we need to know more about. The audi- so let's look at this contract between the audience and the fame seeker. The audience is hungry to find an idol or leader or enemy or scapegoat, someone who will become the observed of all observers, regardless of whether the moral or emotional valence is positive or negative. And this is another thing we have to realize. I stressed last week and the week before, the king is the victim with a suspended sentence. In other words, when we say the, the crowd is hungry for a leader or a scapegoat, if we're operating an ordinary level of sort of typical social science, we say, oh, a leader or a scapegoat. One's way over here on the spectrum, one's way over there on the spectrum. Well, in a certain sense, they are. Nevertheless, they're the same person, you see. The leader is the designated scapegoat who maintains his, his, uh, his position and avoids being scapegoated by becoming the sacred executioner at the crucial moment and offering the crowd an, a, a surrogate victim. So it, all of these things begin to collapse all of these distinctions that we make in terms of conventional social science begin to collapse. So that the crowd is hungry for an idol, a leader, an enemy, a scapegoat, a victim, somebody who will be the observed of all observers. And what is this hunger? It's a hunger for the sacred. It's a hunger for the sacred. What we call fame, the fame of this one, is simply the prestige that comes that's a, that's a synonym for the observed of all observers. Prestige is a social phenomenon. It's what happens to crowds when their own unanimous fascination is reflected back to them off of the, uh, off the, uh, of the uh, shining image of their idol. That's prestige. And it's a hunger for the sacred. The crowd's hunger for the sacred. 
And that's what the manhunt is in a way. It's the hunt for the, the exception that will make possible the social order, the stone the builders rejected. The fame seeker is responding to a lack of primitive sacrality by aspiring to sacred status himself. By performing deeds whose effect will be to make him famous, fame being an attenuated form of the old sacred system. So the, so the contract is the fame seeker will be the god slash victim, the observed of all observers. Why does he want to be? Because the eyes of the crowd, the fame of the crowd is a substitute for ontological substance. And so one wants to be that precisely because one senses a need for ontological substantiation, for some kind of substantiation, which can, which the crowd, the, the interest of the crowd, the the idolizing gazes of the crowd, simulates ontological density. You see what I'm saying? So now let me try to let me try to connect that to the whole problem of Ichabod. The second paragraph in Browdy's book begins as follows. It's a quotation from a letter received by the Wichita police in 1978. Quote, How many times do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Second paragraph in Browdy's book. Browdy's book is not completely innocent of Girard's analysis and so on and so forth, but there you have it. And then it says, only with his sixth killing, the, the author of this letter continued, only with his sixth killing had he begun to get his due of publicity. And then Browdy says, in a cursory reading of any daily newspaper, it is easy to find similar stories that illustrate the various insanities to which individuals have been driven by the lust for recognition. End quote. Well, I want to talk about the lust for recognition, but... These insanities, what strikes us about them is that, my gosh, people are even willing to kill in this lust for recognition. And we don't ask ourselves whether or not there's something, there's another kind of logic working there in terms of which the odd, seemingly odd connection between killing and publicity wouldn't seem as odd. And that's where the anthropological crisis, at the heart of which is the, is the dissolving of the old sacred system, and the ontological crisis, at the heart of which is the lack of ontological mooring, that's where they come together. The lust for recognition is, an, is a, is a self-sacralizing lust. I need recognition. Why? Because in the same way that, in the, as Paul analyzes things, in the same way that I feel a need for justification. Why? And Paul says, you, need, you feel a need for justification because you, have not, you do, do not have faith. If you had faith, you would be justified. You would, the experience of justification would be yours. You would be, your justification would come as a gift, a byproduct of your faith, as a gift. You would not, need, you would not have to chase after it. In exa an exactly parallel way, I think, the lust for recognition, the need to be recognized by more and more people, 
is precisely the need that, that arises when the ontological moorings have been severed. And you see, even Browdy says, a cursory reading of the newspaper, it's easy to find similar stories to illustrate the various insanities to which people have been driven by the lust for recognition. Now, I, I'm, I'll say something. I don't mean to question anybody's motive, and I don't mean to call anybody insane. Nevertheless, we have to put these things in some kind of larger frame. At the end of the Iraqi war, suddenly General Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell were presidential timber. They were suddenly presidential timber. Now, they probably are. As far as in terms of political leadership and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, we have to see something then. Is does that is there any echo of this of this poor man's letter to the to the uh, newspaper here? And he he says, how many times do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper and some national attention? You see what I'm saying? There's a mechanism at work here, which we don't see when it presents itself in a more formal way in a slightly more subtle way. So Browdy talks about the contract of eyes and attention by which the fame seeker and the audience balance their desire. Well, one simple way of breaking it down, it's much more complicated of course, is that culturally fame provides a false transcendence, the kind of false transcendence that the old sacred system, the system of idolatry, always provides. Psychologically and ontologically, it provides a false ontology for the person, the fame, the famous one himself. It substitutes real ontology, real ontological moorings, real ontological density. It substitutes for that the simulated version that comes from having everybody look at you. And that's always rumored to be as Browdy says, the it in, quote, making it. It's rumored to be the solution. See, if I'm famous enough, then I'll be real. I'll never have any more problems. I'll never have to worry about the crowd again. That's the big joke. Yeah. And, and of course, the pe then, we just, then we pick up People Magazine or National Enquirer and we find out, lo and behold, when you get famous, you get crazier. You, the, the ontological density vanishes the more. There's, a, there's almost an inverted uh, algebra here in terms of the number of observers and adulators and the, and the ontological density. They're, they're in inverse relationship, you see. Not totally. Or I would say, if there is one who is, who has, who is grounded ontologically in the way that the biblical tradition urges us to be, then that person can take or leave the adulation with no effect on his or her ontological reality. And so we'll have to talk about that later as well. Okay. Well, let's now just one more little thing before we move on, and that is Browdy says, fame is a contract between the audience and the aspirant, a contract that the fame seeker often knows less about than do those who are asked to be his appreciator." Now, the murderer that wrote to the Wichita police said, how many times do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? And it was only after his sixth killing that he started to get the press coverage he felt he needed. 
So let's ask this. What is the contract between the audience and the fame seeker in this particular case? Well, it's this. And I'll just ask you to look at it structurally. He kills, and his killings inaugurate his fame. He reigns for the duration of his public exposure, that is to say, during the manhunt to find him, his arrest, his trial, at which trial he will be duly convicted by a judge and jury and sentenced to be executed. He knows that. The reign, in other words, which began when he usurped the role of the sacred executioner, will end with his own execution. In other words, it's exactly the same pattern that Kennedy describes in the African kingdom whose anthropological uh, reports he was reading and analyzing. Do you remember that's the story? The, the king has the, the cotton thing around his neck. They're going to strangle him. He pulls out of the, the, of the gourd the certain stones. They count the stones. That's how long he'll live, at the end of which he's gone. Exactly the same pattern. Here, and the king, by the way, in that, in that same culture, is inaugurated by the killing of a slave. So, you see, he begins his, his reign by offering a surrogate victim and becoming the sacred executioner, and his reign ends when he himself is executed. And it's right there in the letter from this murderer to the Wichita police, the same contract. I, in a sense, he's saying, I'm willing to have some kind of to have the kind of ontological density which is rumored to come from fame, I'm willing to cut it short. You see what I'm saying? It's that kind of thing. This is quite amazing. This is a measure of, of the, in a way, the depth of the problem and the, and the, and the uh, residual power of, of the old sacred system and its mechanisms. Okay, so Browdy says in his book, early on, he says, from the 18th century to now, there has been a close relationship between the desire for fame and the uncertainty about personal identity. That's common sense in a way, but it's important for us to see, to see it. In other words, beginning as Browdy records it in the 18th century, one could go further back, no doubt, but at some point, Nevertheless, at some point, the ontological ramifications of the demise of the old sacred system began to manifest themselves and to compound the anthropological and political and historical and cultural ramifications. And so that's what I want to turn to here for a second. So to tease that out a little bit, I want to talk about Hegel. Now, you know I'm not a philosopher. As a matter of fact, the chapter in my book says that philosophy is over. I think it is over. But many people have observed that Hegel secularized the Christian moral and religious ethos, including perhaps unfortunately its eschatology, and franchised it to the world with glaringly mixed results. Uh, Hegel begins the... the uh, in a sense, the religion of history. Hegel sees history as this sacred process. Uh, what, we, what the biblical tradition, the New Testament tradition, talks about in terms of the work of the paraclete, Hegel speaks of as the work of the Spirit. Hegel, by the way, was 
a deeply Christian man, and I think his Christian sensibilities were there all the way. But he, he secularized it and absolutized history and the spirit of history so that it, was re- it would have been recognizable to any Christian, well-informed Christian reading it, but it was, one didn't have to have any of that in order to, to see it. So Hegel's work is taken up by later, you see, by, by Marx and, uh, and others and becomes the, gives, lays the foundation for some of the totalitarian things of the modern world. I mean, I don't want to, you can't blame that on Hegel, but nevertheless, I say, with profoundly mixed results. Hegel also ha- had a very strong hand in fashioning the European Enlightenment, which is collapsing and which was flawed in some fundamental way. Nevertheless, it was well-intentioned in many respects, and it itself was a secularized, <coughs> de-Christianized version of, uh, of the Christian revelation. Okay, here's the point I want to make. Hegel refers in several places to a hymn in the Lutheran hymnal entitled, God Himself is Dead. And Hegel calls this sentence the expression par excellence of the culture of his age. Now, I haven't read the hymn, but I'm sure in the Lutheran hymnal, the hymn God God Himself is Dead simply means he just died on the cross, you see. It doesn't have this other implication we give to it nowadays. Nevertheless, Hegel felt there was something about it that characterized his age. That's one thing he saw. The other thing he saw, which is much more profound in his philosophical writings, is that all of life is an incessant contest. And what is it a contest for? Well, Hegel, again, breaks from conventional analysis of things. What is it a contest for? Is it a contest for land, resources, power? Is it a contest for wealth? No. It's a contest, he says, for recognition recognition and the recognition of one's peers. Well, now, let's put these two things together. These are, these are important things. They just have to be correlated. God is dead as the quintessential expression of the spirit of his age. And second thing is the struggle for recognition. Now, if we, if we see that biblical ontology that is to say, Jeremiah, Jesus, Isaiah, Paul, is the ontology grounded in the experience, the prayerful relationship to the living God. That's the biblical ontology, if we, if we think of it that way. Then God is dead. What does that mean? Well, it has all kind, as Nietzsche's going to say, I'll quote Nietzsche here in a little bit, he says, well, culturally it's absolutely devastating and so on and so forth. What does it mean ontologically? Well, I don't know. We scratch our heads. I don't know. And then we read down in Hegel, and Hegel says, there's this struggle for recognition, a universal struggle for recognition. And what's happening? It's another form of ontology. It's the false form of ontology. If I can get enough people to recognize me, I will feel real again. So those are the two ontologies that are struggling in our world. 